Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and sort of how you can put them back together. This is, again, another Mostly Things Fall Apart episode. Um, here with me is Garrison. Hello. Hello. And joining us today to talk about, well, a, a pretty wide range of things, but about the drug war in Mexico, about paramilitaries, and I guess also I guess about the narco state, is Alex Avenia, who is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University and has written... Several very, very good articles that I've read recently. Um, Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I, I wanted to start by talking about an article that you fi- uh, has uh, come out fairly recently uh, that is about essentially the transition, particularly in Guerrero, from... I guess the, the the sort of 60s, 70s uh, dirty war in Mexico to the drug war. And I, I guess I wanted to start from, because I, I, don't, I don't think this is a history that's particularly well known. Um, I, I want to, I guess, start with sort of an overview of how we got into the sort of dirty war in Mexico in the 60s, because I think, I don't know, like, I think if anyone, if people know stuff about this, it tends to be the very dramatic sort of 
like massacre in 1968, but it's been, it went on for longer than that and has a sort of deeper history. So can you bring us into that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll start off by saying that generally if, when most people think about dirty wars and, and, and cold war Latin America, uh, Mexico is probably the last country that they think of having one, right? Like there's a certain exceptionalism that Mexico has enjoyed until relatively recent, uh, relatively recently. Um, amongst academics and, and especially historians, right, where we're in the last 10, 20 years, we started to uncover Mexico's own version of a dirty war that we are more familiar with in other places like Chile, Argentina, Brazil, mm-hmm. Uruguay, etc. Um, Mexico's dirty war, though, and, and if people know a little bit about this period, like as you mentioned, right, they know about the, the infamous student massacre of Tlatelolco on October 2nd, 1968. But you know, my my research focuses on on this the southern state of Guerrero. It's on the Pacific coast. It's made famous by the resort city of Acapulco. And I wrote a book in twenty four published a book in twenty fourteen that really traced the emergence of armed resistance in the state of Guerrero during the nineteen sixties and seventies. And, and that was my entrance into this idea of a of a Mexican dirty war of the Mexican state practicing systematic state terrorism against political dissidents. And in my case, armed guerrilla dissidents um, who enjoyed the backing of dozens of rural communities um, and, and even urban poor working class neighborhoods in places like Acapulco in the late 60s and, and, and early 1970s. That's a very regional story, right? That's another thing that kind of distinguishes the, the Mexican Dirty War from, from other Latin American cases is that uh, the Dirty War was localized to uh, a few major cities and then to, to very specific locales in the countryside, Guerrero being the, the most bloody theater. Um, the, the way that these uh, guerrilla movements emerged, they really began as these popular civic-minded social movements uh, in the late 50s, early 1960s, and, and, and they protested things like political authoritarianism and economic injustice. But they did so essentially within the confines of the Mexican constitution. They followed the law. Um, you know, Mexico has the, the you know, that, that, that characteristic in Latin America of having the first great social revolution of the 20th century. Um, you, you do have a post-revolutionary government that emerges from the 19 revo- 1910 revolution that has to pay lip service to the radical traditions, to the revolutionary traditions that came out of that, that, you know, that movement. And for that reason, the Mexican constitution that, that was passed in 1917 in its time was the most radical social democratic even, uh, constitution in the Western hemisphere. Um, and, uh, you know, peasant communities, campesino communities in the state of Guerrero believed the letter of the law. So when they started to protest, you know, a, a authoritarian state governors, um, a police violence, army violence, economic injustice in the 60s, they followed the rules and they followed the laws. And each time that they did so, they experienced pretty horrific instances of both state violence exercised by the military and the police, but also everyday forms of violence practiced by, you know, gunslingers who were working for landed elites. And that then radicalized some of these social movements into two separate guerrilla movements that were led by rural communist school teachers, Genaro Vasquez and Lucio Cabañas. And Lucio Cabañas's movement in particular, the Party of the Poor, they ended up creating a guerrilla force of about, the high estimate is about 300 fighters. A more realistic estimate is, is somewhere from 150 to 200. But the, the key is that in coastal Guerrero and in some of the mountains, mountain communities of Guerrero, they obtain a, lo- a pretty substantial amount of popular support, which then leads the Mexican government that had been you know, ruled by the PRI and was ruled, Mexico was ruled by the PRI for like 80 years. Uh, they sent in the military and they waged this pretty horrific 
counterinsurgency that that did things like disappear people, torture, rape. Um, you know, they raised entire communities, um, and that's generally what's known as the dirty war in Mexico. It's rural theater. Its main rural theater was in a place like Guerrero, where you we think there was almost a thousand disappearances from 1969 up until the early 1980s. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Yeah, and one of the things that interested me a lot sort of reading through this was that it's sort of weird for an insurgency in that you, you get aspects of both kind of the, the, the kind of like classical 70s urban guerrilla movement, but it's also a, like it's a very much a rural movement. You have, you know, I mean, like one, one of the stories you tell in this is about, you know, like a, a group a group of people who did one of the, you know, like the, the, the classic urban 70s thing, which is that, you know, they, 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 did, they did a bank robbery. And then two people get tortured and the rural guerrillas sort of get hunted down. And I was I was wondering about the the dynamics of this, because it seems like like there, there's it seems like you have these groups that are kind of unusually moving back and forward between like having bases in cities and having bases in these rural areas. Yeah, that's one. of So usually when 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 folks think about these these guerrilla movements in Guerrero during the 60s and 70s, they think of them primarily as as a, as a you know, very fairly typical rural guerrilla movement, as as you just described. 
But it, these two movements, the one led by Lucio Cabañas, the Party of the Poor, the other one by Genaro Vázquez, the ACNR, Asociación Cívica Nacional Revolucionaria, from the very onset, they tried to connect the rural to the city. Um, whether it was cities in, in Guerrero, like um, the resort city of Acapulco, particularly working class neighborhoods on the outside of the city, or the state capital in Chilpancingo, which housed the state university, right? So both of these movements made pretty substantial inroads into that community. And then also into Mexico City, right? So they tried, their idea was not necessarily to start as a strictly, uh, as a strictly rural movement, but their idea was always to expand because I think to the cities. And I think quite rightly, they, they perceived that what the Mexican state was going to do to them was try to corral them in the state of Guerrero and prevent mm -hmm. them from logistically and politically expanding beyond that. And in the end, they were, that's exactly what happened. Um, and that's how these movements were ruthlessly crushed. That and it took a lot of terror to, to um, separate these armed movements from their popular base of support. But a lot of this has to do with the fact that both Vasquez and Cabañas were school teachers. Mm -hmm. And they were involved in union movements that were national in scope. Um, they were in move, they were in, you know, Lucio Cabañas was in the Mexican Communist Party, right? So he had extensive urban experiences and, and networks throughout the country. Uh, so their perspective was always to connect the rural to the urban, particularly because Mexico by the 70s was a rapidly urbanizing country, right? Yeah. It was going, to, it becomes for the first time in its history, well, first time in its post-colonial history, it becomes primarily yeah. uh, an urban country. So, um, so they, they, they tried these really interesting um, experiments to try to connect the, the two theaters. But as you, as you mentioned, right, they did that typical 1970s thing of uh, robbing banks and their terminology was expropriation, right? Um, but that, that then exposed them to, to police actions. And, and anytime any of their militants were captured, they were immediately tortured, information, you know, the, they were interrogated horrifically. And that from intel was used to to hunt down their their their, uh, their comrades up in the mountains in Guerrero. Yeah, and and I think that that's a good place to move towards sort of the other side of this, which is partially the Mexican state response, but the the, the part the part of it that was really interesting to me was about how, you know, so so part 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 of what these groups are fighting are these sort of very very local, like sort of landed elites and. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these sort of local elites merge are able to merge with and sort of like co-opt in a lot of ways the the military units that are uh, deployed. Yeah, that's one of the, the biggest. So let me see how I can answer this question, because there's there's so it what, what I what I try to do in this article and it's part of my broader ongoing research is to kind of connect. The, the violence, the state violence of the Mexican Dirty War as it, as, as it happens in Guerrero in the 70s with, with, with something else that's happening simultaneously, which is like the so-called drug war and the exponentially increasing cultivation of drugs in a place like Guerrero, particularly marijuana and then um, opium poppies that are used to produce heroin. Um, so what I try to do in the article that, that you're referencing is kind of to show there's a longer history in Guerrero of, of how power ex is exercised at the local level and how some of these local landed elites are able to weather the 1910 Mexican Revolution. They're able to weather the agrarian reform efforts that, that um, occurred in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and, and really these, these families, like one of the, the things that, that captures my attention of, of Guerrero is that uh, you can tell who's in power by just by almost by looking at their last name, because there's this remarkable continuity in the state of who has managed to exercise power at the local level, political, social, and economic power. Um, for decades now, for generations. 
Um, and, and you can track how power works by looking at families. And in, in what I do in this article is to look at a couple of landed elite families that had managed to stay in power for decades. Um, so there's certain that landed, uh, in this article, I focus on one municipality called Coyuca de Catalan, which is in the hot lands region of Guerrero. Um, during, you know, probably from about 2008 to 2015, it was in the top three in Mexico for opium and, and heroin production. So it becomes this massive uh, uh, drug producing region. So I go back in time and I kind of trace like, who was in power in this region, who owned land, who owned the resources throughout the 20th century, and, and how they were responsible for essentially creating this little narco fiefdom as it currently exists, and, and trying to figure out which families were involved. So on the one hand, you have these families that have been in power from like the 1920s and 30s, and they're still exercising power. And then when we get to the 1970s, and you have this, this horrific dirty war, this counterinsurgency that the state and the military are waging against communities in Guerrero, that opens up new possibilities for new families to come in and to ally themselves with locally stationed uh, uh, military units. And they work together to wipe out guerrillas and, and guerrilla supporters. At the end, at the same time, they start to you know, kind of dip their toe into this, this world of, of narcotics production. Because really Mexico in the 1970s, especially by the mid 1970s, it becomes the number one provider of, of, of marijuana and heroin to the United States. Um, and this is part of just a, a broader global history of narcotics, right? There's U.S.-led uh, drug interdiction efforts in places like Turkey, Afghanistan, and in the in Southeast Asia, and efforts to suppress the dr drug production there creates this, you know, what, what, what people usually refer to as a balloon effect. Uh, it just displaces the drug production somewhere else because the demand in the U.S. is still there, and that and that creates in Mexico the number one provider of narcotics by the mid 1970s, and that then has an impact locally in the place of Guerrero which is again, simultaneously experiencing a guerrilla insurgency, a dirty war, and then also the ramping up of drug production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. One of the most interesting parts of this that I didn't know about was about how, I mean, very, like how how explicitly because you know, I've read a lot of well not a lot but I've, I've read about a lot of how particularly like after like when when the sort of after sort of the the, the various upheavals in two thousand six in Mexico with the Oaxaca uprising with the Zapatistas making a bunch of moves and the the CP presidential election about how you get the drug war as this sort of like military solution to these leftist movements but I, I was interested in how i mean incredibly explicit they are about this like the 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 anti-guerrilla operations are like they don't call them anti-guerrilla operations they they they, they talk about like bandits and like they they they, they 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 they're explicitly like no 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 this is an anti-narco operation even though you know they're going and massacring like essentially peasants and occasionally guerrillas but just a bunch of just yeah. random like campesinos yeah yeah, there's a there's a, a a great quote that I got from, from in this article. Um, you know, there's this wonderful researcher in Mexico, Carlos Flores, who has a really good book on, on kind of like the uh, the failed state in Mexico and and drugs and military. And in that study, he managed to interview a, a military participant in the Dirty War in the 1970s. And he he has this great quote that I included in this essay, in which he says, "This military guy says basically." Look, with the marijuana growers, we had no problem. We had no beef. Uh, but with the gorillas, we had to fuck them up. And, and for me, like that, that direct quote kind of encapsulates like what the drug war in Mexico has been historically and in its current form. Like, and this is something that I learned from people like sociologists and journalists, Don Paley, right? Like the war on drugs is a war on poor people. Um, and and it, be, it becomes in the 1970s, it becomes a really useful cover for the type of horrific violence that the state is practicing in, in, in a place like Guerrero against these popularly supported guerrilla insurgencies. So publicly and to the international audience and to its own domestic national audience, the, the Mexican state is saying, look, we're not waging a dirty war. We're not waging a counterinsurgency. We're fighting a war against cattle wrestlers, against cattle thieves, and against criminals, against drug dealers. Um, when in reality, they're waging a war against poor people who are supporting these different guerrilla insurgencies led by these rural communist school teachers. Um, so that's, and that's in the rural theater, right? It's, it's really interesting when you think about how, uh, the Mexican state in the seventies will criminalize urban guerrilla movements. You know, Mexico had like 38 guerrilla movements in the 1960s and seventies. That's just like, people don't really recognize that, right? Like 38 to 40 different rural and urban guerrilla organizations. The big urban one that managed to create, I don't know, 10 to 12 different, uh, focos or fossa, uh, foci. Um, was the Liga Comunista 23 de Septiembre, the, the Communist League of the 20, 23rd of September. Um, they became such a big threat in the urban theater that the Mexican president, Luis Echeverria, devoted his 1974 State of the Union, basically the Mexican version of the State of the Union, he devoted a pretty good chunk of it to these quote-unquote terrorists, 
right? So for the urban guerrillas, he referred to them as terrorists. And then he does this thing where he says, you know, most of these terrorists are unpatriotic. They, and I'm going to paraphrase some of his language. They reveal high indices of homosexuality, <laughs> of like just basically othering them to the point that they're seen as like the most despicable other in Mexico, in Mexican society. And that then opens them up to getting wiped out. Um, which is it fulfills a similar function as calling the, the the rural guerrillas nothing more than cattle rustlers, cattle thieves, and narcos, right? So it's all this counterinsurgency, like discursive strategy that that justifies the elimination of these people. But at bottom, these are just wars against the drug war is a war against poor people, and and you see that to this day. You see that you know most one of the things that really animates my research about the history of drug wars in Mexico is that I really want to push back against you know journalistic treatments that, that will say, look, Mexico's war on drugs began in 2006 when President Felipe Calderón you know, launched the military against these different drug trafficking organizations. And it, you know, historians um, like, like myself who work on this were like, wait, no, Mexico's had a series of drug yeah. wars, right? That the, there's a historian, Alec Dawson, who talks about, has a really excellent book on peyote. And he talks about how the war on drugs begins in like the colonial era, right? In terms of how the Spanish colonial state criminalized uh, indigenous consumption of, of drugs like peyote for, for their own ritualistic cultural practices. Um, the 1970s is another moment where you have a, a form of, uh, of drug war that the Mexican state exercises. But from my perspective, it's just, uh, it's almost like a cover as a way to wage war against political dissidents and, and armed guerrilla challenges to its rule in Mexico. Yeah. And, and I think that's an, that's an important way of looking at it also as just a way to understand why, you know, like if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of like a policymaker, it's like, oh, well, we spent all this time doing the war on drugs. Like, why are there more drugs? And it's like, well, yeah, because I mean, the, the point isn't really about like, I mean, yeah, I, I think, I, okay, I, I want to make a caveat here, which is like, it, it's not like there's a, such a thing as like a quote unquote good war on drugs that you could wage. Like there, there's no, there isn't a version of this that's like, oh no, if, if, if we actually just tried to like focusing on stopping these people, it would work. But it's like, no, but Simultaneously, yeah, it, it's that the, the 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 goal isn't really about like it's not about drugs; it's just about killing poor people. And I th yeah, I think that that's that's a good way of framing it. And it, I think also it's an interesting way of looking at why you start to see these sort of supposedly like anti-narco units just immediately start doing like immediately get into the trade. <laughs> Cause. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because they're like they're positioned to make a ton of money off of it. Yeah, right? like it's yeah, they're not dumb. Yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know. There's this interesting question about like the structure of the state here too, because you know, like like in Chicago, this is another like this is the thing that happens all the time. Is yeah, you get these you get these anti drug units that are you know incredibly specialized. They get a bunch of money and then they immediately turn around and start, and start like just do like just enter, enter into the drug trade. And so I, I was one of the other things. Yeah, I was just been interested in this of just about th there's th there's seems to be these these very these these very interesting sort of alliances between paramilitaries cartels the police and the military that open up and i uh, this this i know this is an incredibly broad like it's a question you can like you know devote academic disciplines to but i was wondering how how you look at the state in the context in in a context like this because yeah i mean in in a context where you know it's not the state doesn't really have monopoly on violence 
Right. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a huge question. And there's how you, I mean, essentially the question is like, what is the state? Which is like, yeah. that question <laughs> always terrorizes me. Yeah. Uh, and how you answer that question then leads, has consequences to how we think about things like the drug war or, you know, violence in Mexico or a variety of different things. Right. But so the, what I, what I do in this article is on Coyuca de Catalan is, is to just simply look at what the state looks like at the local level. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly like it's repressive apparatuses and what you see in a place like Coyuca de Catalan, because you know, you see kind of like uh, it's a multi-scalar uh, issue, right? Where mm-hmm. you have generations of conflicts over land and land tenure and who gets to control rural markets, who gets to control access to rural markets and rural production, right? So there's already like a built-in structure that's exploitative that has somehow managed to weather uh, a, a big social revolution and agrarian reform effort. And on top of that, then in the 60s and 70s, you get, uh, you know, industrialized uh, narcotics production placed on top of this pre-existing structure, right? So it should be no, it's almost like no surprise then that, you know, the gunslingers that used to work for landed elites will now serve as not just gunslingers for landed elites who are terrorizing campesinos, but now they're also going to work with like local narcotic, uh, you know, narco farmers, drug farmers, and, and traffickers. And then at the same time, they're going to do their best to co-opt, to buy off you know, military units that are stationed at the local level, police units that are stationed at the local level, local judges, local magistrates, local political officials. And, and it, be, it creates a very um, dense network at the local level of people who are working together uh, to maintain power, but at the same time, uh, make sure that this really profitable political economy of narcotics is going to thrive. And this is at the very local level, right? So in some in some ways, those local interests of the quote unquote the state are will conflict with the state in Mexico City. Yeah, yeah. And how to resolve those tensions and becomes a big deal. So the the guy that the military participant that I referenced earlier, he was he was actually sent in from outside of Guerrero into Guerrero to wage counterinsurgency. And you know, he talks in this book about how they didn't know what to do when they see their soldier comrades, uh, you know, obviously collaborating with local narcos, even though this guy and his unit have been sent in to wipe out the narcos. So what ends up happening is is that the the goal is never to eradicate the, 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 from a national level, from a state national level, the goal is never to eradicate the drug trade in Mexico in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The goal is to rationalize it. The goal is to to control it. And, And the goal is for the state to be able to maintain power over it. And this is it leads us to what, you know, some scholars will refer to as a plaza system, right? That 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 different narcotic organ trafficking organizations will control different parts of Mexico, but the overall power, you know, they have to kick back to um, is our different state officials. Um, and that you know, there's a recent book, really great book uh, by Ben Smith called The Dope that just came out. It's really like the first really good English language big history of of the Mexican drug trade. And and he essentially he says that like that the, the Mexican state is is a racket. It's a racket, and it's ensuring that this drug trade exists and it's centralized and it's rationalized in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, but by the 90s, it starts to lose control as the state itself is neoliberalized and becomes smaller, and its capacity to control these different groups um, becomes uh, uh, weakened. So, so that's like the big national level, right? And then we can, that takes us to the scale of the international, which is a whole other thing. 
But at the very local level, what does this look like? It looks like if you're a drug farmer, right? Because another thing in Guerrero is that these drug farmers are like small scale, right? They're, they're small scale. They have a little bit of autonomy, but they're small scale, uh, but they're selling their product to these traffickers. And these are the traffickers usually that will have connections to local landed families, who will have connections to military, to police, to politicians, um, that will ensure that this economy will, will, ha- will continue to thrive in a, in, in a profitable way. By the late 70s, and this is something else I think that I, I need to do a little bit more research on, but you see it happen elsewhere in Mexico, and I, especially in the Northwest in a place like Sinaloa, which is usually seen as the cradle of the Mexican drug trade. But I think in the late 70s, both in Sinaloa and in Guerrero, the dirty war and, and, the, and the sending of the military in mass in a place like Guerrero, it not only takes out armed resistance to the Mexican state, but it will also take out small scale narco traffickers who don't want to play they don't like the rules that the Mexican state is imposing upon them in order to make mm-hmm. money and traffic drugs. Um, so I've seen a couple of documents where, um, you know, secret police spy agent uh, documents where they say, okay, yes, you know, these, these campesinos who are accused of being guerrillas, yes, we are disappearing them, but apparently some small scale drug traffickers are also being disappeared because they're not, they don't want to go along with the rules being imposed by the Mexican military. And that's something that you see in, in Sinaloa in the late 70s, when something called Operation Condor gets launched and you get thousands of troops and federal police who go up there. And instead of eradicating the drug trade and getting rid of, of these different uh, traffickers, what they do is they centralize it, they rationalize it. Um, they make it more efficient. Um, and that actually, it's, so it's in, a, in, a, in a counterintuitive way, it's state violence that actually leads to the formation of things that we think about as cartels and, and not the other way around, right? Because uh, the, the very trade uh, begins within the confines of the Mexican state. And in part two of this interview, we're going to drill deeper into that question and look at how the state's attempt to get in on the drug trade created the cartels and how they sort of lost control of them, leading to an incredible increase in paramilitary violence and death and destruction. And on that happy note, this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, join us again tomorrow for that. And in the meantime, uh, stay safe and don't die. If you want to find us, we're at Happen here pod on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find other work that we do at Cools on Media on Twitter. If for some reason you can you want to continue venturing onto the hell sites. Goodbye. It could happen here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 